It is such an honor for me to be here. This place has been so meaningful for me personally and for my congregation, my current one, Southminster Presbyterian, from the other side of the river. We have come here with our elders many a times for training and just retreat and recharge. So it's a privilege to be here with you as we struggle with God's word together tonight. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, silence all in our hearts that may keep us from hearing you afresh. Come settle on me and guide my words. Come settle on all of us and open our hearts. May we be touched by you in a new way and transformed so that we can live to your glory. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I am from Hungary and I have a friend there who is a storyteller. She's a spiritual guide and a life coach. She uses folk tales in her work and she contends that traditional folk tales are wonderful tools, really treasure boxes full of wisdom regarding how to live life well how to relate to others, how to deal with difficult, challenging, moral and ethical situations. They are not merely old collections of words that we adults have already outgrown, that are merely stories for children. She argues that we can benefit from these folk tales if we are willing to put ourselves in the shoes of the various characters and journey with them so that we can discover how these stories may teach us about living truthfully good, as good and kind people in a complicated universe. I think this is not unlike how scriptures have been used throughout the millennia by all kinds of people of faith. Like this story from Exodus, the story of God's deliverance of God's people from bondage, from servitude. In fact, if you check out your Bibles, the book of Exodus begins with a remembrance, remembering Joseph's family carrying God's promise and God's blessing into their new place, remembering the father Jacob, the famous patriarch, and all his sons as they journey from Israel to Egypt to escape a famine in their country. Remembering this family who settled in a new country and made it their own under the wise leadership of Joseph. Remembering how they became fruitful and prolific and how they helped their new country to flourish as well. But then this remembrance is abruptly stopped with an announcement that a new king came to power in Egypt. One, we are told, who does not know Joseph. A new king with a short memory, you would say. Joseph, of course, is long dead by this time, so the new king could not have known him personally. But the king does not know or willfully ignores his 
country's history, the contributions that generations of Hebrews offered to their new country. He does not want to acknowledge that the Egypt of his day could only be what it was because of the hard work and sacrifices of the descendants of these immigrants who came from Israel. And because the new king does not remember, he can only interpret the present from a very narrow perspective. He sees the fulfillment, the fruitfulness and the prosperity resulting from the hard work of the Hebrews as a potential threat to his own power. The new king deems this particular ethnic group as a threat to his power, but not only to his own power, but to his own nation, the way he defines that. So he orders the Israelites be subjected to oppression, to all kinds of ruthless tasks. And the lack of remembering leads this new king further and further down on the path of paranoia and sickening fear, to the point where he orders the whole country to kill all male babies from the Hebrews. A quite counterproductive enterprise when you think about how he depended on these very children for the labor to build his cities. Well, against this backdrop comes the little pericope I just read to you. And as in good folk tales, it's full of ironies. For we read that despite the oppression, the Israelites still go on with life. They develop skills for survival under oppression. I think it must have been similar to what I have experienced growing up as a child in communist Romania under the communist dictatorship. In that system that was systematically discriminating and oppressing minority groups to safeguard a false notion of one nation, one country, one people, one language, you get it. Some felt the need to serve this regime, right? But there were others who did not want to serve and found ways to resist, sometimes to seemingly silly, subversive acts, like giving your child a name that cannot be translated into Romanian, like my parents did, so Enikö does not have a Romanian equivalent, it's only a Hungarian name, in a system that was intent on erasing one's cultural history. So you as a child became a living symbol of the richness of cultural diversity, a small act of resistance. I would argue that we find such acts of resistance in our story today. A Hebrew mother gives birth to a son, and she loves him, and she wants to offer him a good life. What parent would not want that for their children? The Hebrew text recalls the creation story, for it says that when the mother saw, bore a son and saw that it was good, it's the same language that we have in Genesis at the creation story. When God saw God's beautiful creation, God said that it was good. So when the mother sees her newborn baby, 
she looks at her beautiful creation and wants to protect that creation because it is good. So she finds the basket and make, lines it with bitumen and then gently places it among the reeds on the river. But then who finds the basket? Pharaoh's daughter, right? The one who belongs the other camp, the oppressor. And we are told that Pharaoh's daughter immediately recognizes the baby as one of the Hebrew children. If you wonder what, how she could identify this child, I can tell you it was not because the child was circumcised, because at that time, Egyptians also practiced circumcision quite widely. The text doesn't tell us, right, why, how she could recognize the child. So it made me wonder how she did it. Maybe because she saw that the child seemed abandoned. Sociologist Brene Brown, who some of you might know from her work on researching shame and vulnerability and how to live life courageously, says that her husband, who has practiced, he's a practicing pediatrician, has been for like the last 20 years, can recognize now why children cry. So he can tell when a baby is crying because they are really hungry, or when a baby is crying because they are really tired, or when they are crying because they are just so mad. So for Father's Day this year, he asked his wife to go back to a detention center near their home in Texas, where migrant babies and children separated from their parents are held, because he said that when he was there on a previous visit, the cry he heard was not simply a cry of fear, but a cry of terror and of deep trauma. So I wondered, perhaps Pharaoh's daughter heard such a cry from the basket, a baby crying in similar distress that's how she knew that it must be one of these abandoned babies. And when she saw the baby, we are told that she had compassion for him. And despite the father's decree, Pharaoh's daughter rescues the baby out of the Nile and hires the baby's mother to nurse him. The daughter stands against the father's brutal decree, refusing to participate in infanticide. And in a way, she publicly demonstrates that her father's policies are bankrupt. These two women, the mother of the baby and Pharaoh's daughter, are designated to be enemies in their world. One, the daughter of the supreme leader of the land, and the other one, a Hebrew woman, a despised foreigner, who on top gives birth to a boy child to be killed. Yet these women refuse to live out their assigned hostilities to one another. Coming from very different backgrounds, these two women show that in the face of cruelty and life-threatening forces in their system, the natural human response is to resist evil by acting with courage, with kindness, and with compassion. They both make a conscious choice that entails risk and vulnerability in order to protect a little life that's vulnerable, that's in danger, that's powerless. 
this seemingly small act of resistance assures that that little baby can grow up to become Moses, adopted into Pharaoh's family, no, no less, to become a leader of Israel who then will lead his people out of bondage into freedom. That's a story for sure worth remembering. But it is also worth for us to remember that we too have the choice to become life nurturers in the face of powers that divide, that diminish, that destroy. I heard a study recently on NPR that was showing how we are wired to be both kind and cruel. And altruism is not inevitable even in small babies, as young as six months old. According to the study, tribalism was manifested in these young babies. Often, they were showing preferences to members of their own race and against other races. In another study, experiment, they also showed that when babies were faced with puppets with a different preference for snacks, or let's say apples instead of peaches, the babies were not only less kind to the puppet with a different preference, they also wanted to punish that puppet more often. But don't worry, it's not all gloom and doom. They also found that the children who faced other children in distress, and those who were those who wanted to help and who were more kind to these other children in distress had parents who were nurturing and warm. But more than that, parents who were also giving them very clear moral instructions about what is right and what is wrong. These parents took it very seriously when their child would harm another child, for example. One parent said that she gave clear correction but with feeling. So it wasn't all just like, you don't do this, but explaining what's going on. Like saying, you heard Amy, pulling hair really hurts. Never pull other people's hair. And what's the message for the child? That hurting others, it's a big deal and it's not okay. Remembering our scriptural stories about kindness and compassion is important so that we can cultivate our own capacity for kindness and compassion and to help our little ones to learn them too. For they are watching and learning from us as young as six months, right? Acting with kindness is such a hard work, we know that, and cultivating a more consistent kindness in children especially towards people who aren't like them, falls to all of us, to parents, to teachers, and the rest of us grown-ups. It is our responsibility and our calling. And if Pharaoh's amnesia teaches us anything, it is this, that the well-being of our community depends on whether or not we remember our identity, whose we are, and who we are called to be, so that we can raise our children, passing on a heritage of kindness and compassion. Jesus says, if you haven't done this to the least of these, you haven't done it to me. Can we see?
Can we hear the little ones in our midst who are in distress? Whether they are the ones who go to school hungry at Chimborazo or any other school in our communities, or little ones who are bullied in school or live in the terror of a violent neighborhood, or the little ones who are crying in distress in detention centers far away from parents who would love to offer them a better life. What will we do? What will you do? What will I do? That's the question for us, my friends. May we remember and may our imagination be freed and our hearts opened so that we can become life nurturers and life-giving forces that heal our broken world so that we can grow together into that holy dwelling place for God. May it be so. Amen. Amen.